Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Good morning to all of you. We have visitors today in this auditorium. Thank you for being here. Always glad to have you that are online with our class. We're studying the book of Hebrews, as you can see, and we're going to cover, Lord willing, today, Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. This is an exciting study to me. For a long time, I have loved the book of Hebrews. It is a key to understanding our salvation in Jesus Christ. You that are familiar with this class know that we're just going to read it and talk as we read through it. You have the notes on the screen, so we'll get into it now. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in all things pertaining to God, that he may offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he's required as for the people, also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. That's talking about the high priest of the Old Testament, beginning with Aaron, the priest in the tabernacle and the high priest in the temple. This applied to them. I've often had the question asked, what kind of gifts did the priest offer? And I've attempted to talk about that just a little bit here in Leviticus chapter 7, beginning from verse 32. This is a, a reading that does not make a lot of sense to us unless we know the Old Testament. Also the right thigh, uh, the priests are told, uh, you shall give to the priest as a heave offering from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. It's a lot of peace offerings. That's offerings that were not required. And uh, if you got ready for a, a meal of, uh, of animal flesh, you made a peace offering, and you were given part of that peace offering for your meal. <clears throat> there were times when the Israelites could not slaughter an animal except at the tabernacle or temple or under the authority of some priest because there was so much idolatry. He among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offering and the fat shall have the right thigh for his part. For the breast of a wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering I have given for the children of Israel for the sacrifices of their peace offerings and I have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons for the children of Israel as a statute forever. Heave offerings? Wave offerings? What in the world does that mean? Well, the people brought a, a, a shoulder to the priest as a gift of God. The priest would take that shoulder and would give it to God and then bring it back. Give it to God and bring it back. Give it to God and bring it back. That was a gift to God, but it eventually came to be the property for the priest. And then he offered a portion of that to God as some kind of burnt offering, but he took the most of it for himself. Had no way to work, had no way to farm, and he was supported that's one, one way he was supported. That was called a heave offering, a heave offering because he heaved it up. 
He heaved it up. He heaved it up. I don't know how many times, but several times. And uh, it was a gift to God, and God kept giving it back. But then the wave offering, that was another part of the peace offering. That was when they took the breast of the animal, and sometimes the person who is giving this would put his hands on it, and the priest would put his hands under that, under that, uh, the offer's hands, and it would be given to the altar, taken back, given to the altar, taken back, given to the altar, taken back, sometimes with sort of a rotation uh, methods, not necessarily to God up here, but God at the altar. And that wave offering was then given to the people, the person, the offer to eat, given to God, and then God gave it back to the people to eat, and uh, sometime a portion of that to the priest. That is complex for us. But that was understandable and meaningful to the people of that day. No man, in verse 4, takes this honor, that is the honor of being high priest, to himself. But he who is called by God, just as Aaron was, so also Christ did glorify himself to become high, did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, you are my son, today have I begotten you. God the Father made him high priest. He also says, in another place you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Why not the order of Aaron? Because Aaron's order, the individuals in Aaron's order lasted from 20 to 30 years, and then they were retired or died. Jesus would not die. According to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he's talking about Jesus here, prayed to God who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. That's big because he still died. Jesus begged his father to save him, but he still died. But he was heard because of his godly fear. Though he were a son, yet learned obedience by the things which he suffered, Hmm. And having been perfected, he became the author of his salvation, eternal salvation to all them that obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you become dull of hearing. It's still hard to explain. And I hope it's not because we're dull of hearing. It's just a very difficult concept here. But as Jesus prayed and begged God for his life, he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What are the possibilities? Could it have been done at all? Of course it could have been done. But where would that have left me? Lost forever. You lost forever. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And then, of course, in John 12, 28, Father, glorify thy name. So God blessed him, did not deliver him from that death, but he blessed him in that death, and he blessed us in that death. Let's just look at Melchizedek just a minute. Offered uh, mentions uh, a few times in the Bible. One time in Genesis, Genesis chapter, and I did forget the chapter, but... Abraham went to Salem to meet him and gave him tithes, mentioned one time in Psalm, in Hebrews mentioned nine times, and that is the extent of it. Melchizedek was not mentioned any other times in the Bible. Now in uh, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 3, 
Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogies, having neither beginning nor end of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a high priest continually. Melchizedek? Who was he? He was Melchizedek. What was he? I think he was a man. I think he was a man like I am and like you are, if you're a man. Some believe he was a special spiritual being, a, uh, an angelic kind of thing. I don't find any evidence for that in Scripture. But, but it does say he was without father, without mother, without genealogy. He didn't have beginning of days or end of life. So he was forever, too forever. No, no, no. It's not the import here. The import is we don't know his genealogy. God kept that from us, kept the names of his parents away from us, kept his life and death away from us, or kept his birth and death away from us. So he could be symbolic of that which is forever. Jesus Christ became that in reality, an eternal being. Without beginning of days, without end of days, he was the Son of God, and he be, remains a priest forever. Melchizedek, as a man, did not remain a priest forever, but what he established, the order of Melchizedek, is said to be a priesthood forever. Jesus Christ adopted that and carried it on through. Now, this latter part of this uh, chapter is very strange. The writer says, For though by the time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. That's the ABCs of the oracles of God found in the Old Testament. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. Everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of their use, of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, we're going into chapter 6 with this strange uh, reprimand here because in chapter 6, he tells them to move away from the elementary principles. Right here in what we just read, he says you need to be taught again the first principles. And then in verse 1, the next verse, he says move away, leave the elementary principles. Contradiction? I don't think so. You sports fans. July 1961, Vince Lombardi, the Green Bay Packers, met with his football team. They're about to start the practice for the season. 38 of those men, professional players. The year before, guess what? Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Eagles, had beat them the fourth quarter of the National Football League Championship and robbed them of that championship. Now they are assembled for a new season and Vince Lombardi is going to give them some new rules and regulations. He's going to show them new plays. He's come up with a lot of great ideas something nobody's ever seen before, and they're sitting in rapt attention. Coach Lombardi comes out, football in hand, and says, gentlemen, this is a football. That was their session. What's he saying? 
You guys last year didn't even know what a football was. You let those Philadelphia Eagles run all over us. We lost the championship. There's another comparison I can make here, and I'm going to. It, it would be illegal now to do this. So if we have any coaches in the audience, don't take this up. But the varsity team loses the biggest game of the year, the homecoming game. And, oh, the uh, coach, everybody in the community is upset, very upset. And uh, the coach doesn't know why he wants to kill them, but he can't do that. So he comes back and uh, gets ready for practice the next week. And he says... Uh, after he does all he can do, he says, okay, girls, go out and do it. You've heard that before if you've been on a football team. The reason you can't say that is because, I don't know if you know it or not, but girls are just as good in football playing as men are. If you don't believe it, just ask the woke generation. They'll tell you. You ladies can identify as men and go out for football and stand toe-to-toe with them. We've gone crazy. That's all I have to say. And I want to tell you something else. Men try to identify as women and stand toe-to-toe with them, and that's crazy too. We can't do that. It's impossible. Don't, don't get me started on that. I already started on it. I'll leave it. Therefore, uh, Hebrews 6, he says, Okay, since I've told you now you don't know anything, and you need to be retrained on the basics that had already been set forth for you for ages... Therefore, leaving the discussion of elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, the doctrines of baptism, of laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, of eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. The word leaving here, I have it blackened, darkened, bolded, is uh, ephemai in Greek, and I say that because it's an unusual word, and here's some ways it's talked about. Peter, oh, I had to get my name in here, by the way. You see in line one here, <clears throat> Peter and Andrews, that really should be Andrew. Ephemai, their nets. They Ephemai, their boat and father. Uh, Peter's mother-in-law, the fever Ephemai her. We have Ephemai all and followed you. Matthew 10, the woman, the husband is not to Ephemai his wife. This is 1 Corinthians 7, 11, 12, and 13, used three times there. That word means to leave. It means to put in the background. Okay, now let's look. Here are some things they were to Ephemai. Repentance from dead works. Hmm. Hebrews 9 uses this term again, uh, that is, dead works. For if the blood of bulls and goats, ashes of a heifer springs unclean, sacrifice, uh, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Whatever that is, uh, whatever dead works are, the conscience must be cleansed of those dead works. Dead works are sometimes thought to be those works that kill you. I don't know how to say that other than that way. But I believe that they were works that were at one time necessary and effective, but no longer spiritually affected. The uh, animal sacrifices, uh, the ways of purifying the flesh in the Old Testament, 
the observing of holy days, all those things were things that God commanded. But was he commanding them in Hebrews? No. And they were to repent of those dead works and leave them alone. They were to ephemeye those works. They're no longer good. On the Day of Atonement, Israel knew her sins were atoned for, that is, forgiven, but she also knew she would be reminded of those sins again. That's, uh, that's the way it was in the Old Testament. Not in the New Testament. When our sins are sent away, when they're forgiven, they are forgotten. Not in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. And then, a fear my faith toward God. Really? We're not supposed to have faith toward God? Well, that's a reference to the kind of faith they did have. The Christian's faith in God is through Christ. Ephemah, the doctrine of baptisms. A little technical here, and I'm not using bad language, but I want to say this. The word there for baptisms is baptismos. It's a plural word in the Greek. It's an unusual word in the Greek, and it usually refers to the washing of pots and pans and those kinds of things. Matter of fact, uh, Mark 7, 4 when they, uh, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Baptismos. I'm sorry, that's not baptismos there. That's later on. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing, there's the baptismos, of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Why? To get rid of the filth. To get rid of the external filth. But back here in the first sentence there, uh, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. That varied according to culture in those days. The Essenes that lived down at the northern part of the Dead Sea in the, in the Qumran, they were not happy about Jerusalem at all. When they had to go to Jerusalem, they would go there, come back, and outside the gates of their little community there, they would take off all their clothes, wash them in pure water, and bathe themselves before they could go back into the community. That was a washing that got rid of the filth of the flesh, they thought. Wow. Baptisma is the common word for our baptism into Christ. But that leaving baptisms is not baptisma. It's the washing of pots and pans and so forth. Leave the laying on of hands. The Old Testament is full of laying on of hands. Exodus 29.10, You shall also have the bull brought before the tabernacle of meeting, and Aaron, the high priest and his sons, shall put their hands on the head of the bull. Why? To transfer the sins of the people, or the sins of the priesthood, rather, on the bull. That bull was to be killed, the blood taken, and taken into the holy, most holy place. Laying on of hands. Seven more similar scriptures in Exodus and Leviticus have the same terminology. And then there's the resurrection of the dead. Those in the Old Testament knew there would be a resurrection, but they did not know its details. During the intertestamental period, 400 years there, Malachi to Christ, a quarrel arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees over this matter. I should say that the Pharisees and Sadducees arose during that time. There were no Pharisees and Sadducees in Malachi. There were in Matthew. So they developed and then quarreled over the resurrection of the dead. Jesus came to defend resurrection at Lazarus' tomb. I am the resurrection 
And then he sealed the matter with his own resurrection when it did occur. And then there's the eternal judgment. They were to lay aside what they had been taught about that. God had, uh, the Gentiles had no hope of eternal life. Jesus, the, the Jews, as God's chosen people, thought they would be ruling with the Messiah from Jerusalem during the Messianic age. Incidentally, so far as the Jews is concerned, the Messianic age is not here yet because the Messiah has not come. We, of course, know Jesus was the Messiah. They don't know that. Their beliefs, of course, were ill-founded and had to be abandoned. And the writer here says, abandon them. Now, this is a biggie. This is a biggie. Verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. If they fall away. Remember what the book of Hebrews is about. The book of Hebrews is not about thou shalt not steal. It's not about thou shalt not covet. It's not about thou shalt not commit adultery. It's not about thou shalt do no murder. It is about loving God. It is about thou shalt not try to find God in the law of Moses. Because that law is passed. If they follow, how are they going to fall away? They're going to go back, and some of them were doing this, they're going back to the law of Moses to seek justification by the law. That's how they were going to fall away. Now, this, this passage right here is a great problem for many today and uh, Christendom. First of all, it is a, uh, it is a great problem for those who do not believe you can fall away. But the writer here is referring to those who were once enlightened. And the text is a warning to the, the people he's writing to, to his readers. And if they were not part of that, if some of them were not part of the once enlightened that were falling away, then they might be. So he's asking them not to do that. Calvinist, number two, the tulip people, remember the total depravity. Men are born totally depraved. They're totally apart from God. That's the T. Unconditional regeneration. God is going to come along and just regenerate them unconditionally. They're not going to have anything to do with it. Limited atonement. He's going to do that for a few. And that's all. The rest, we miss it. Irresistible grace. Whoever he uh, put his, puts his atonement on can't help it. They can't resist it. Perseverance of the saved. Once saved, always saved. Perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved. That's TULIP. They insist that those were not Christians. Since they had received all the information about Christianity, were on the verge of conversion, their rejection resulted in a state of impossibility of salvation. Calvinists believe they were eternally cut off from God. So the Calvinists put up a scene here so that these people have tasted the Holy Spirit. They have, they have just seen the little bit of Christianity, they like it, they're getting closer and closer, and all of a sudden they go away before they're converted, and they can never come back. This is a strange, strange doctrine believed by a high percentage 
of fundamentalist Christians, if I can use that terminology, a high percentage of fundamentalist Christians. Put forth by Augustine in the 5th century. They have promoted it. And that's the reason. Do you have a friend who is very religious? You start talking about baptism and he says it has nothing to do with salvation. What about 1 Peter 3.21? The like figure where unto you in baptism doth also now save us. It doesn't mean that. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. It doesn't mean that. The eunuch, see, here's water. What hindered me to be baptized? Be baptized? Why? Well, he wants to show he's a Christian. No, he wants to. No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean he wants to get into Christ. Whatever you say about baptism and salvation, it doesn't mean that. Why? Because for the Calvinists to believe that baptism is a means of obtaining salvation, it refutes every view that he holds on Calvinism. He cannot give it up. I studied with a man one time. We concluded at the first that he uh, was saved uh, and then baptized. We studied for three or four nights. And he read and concluded that in order to be saved, you had to be baptized. And I said, when are you going to do it? He said, I've already done it. And I said, well, why did you do it? He said, for the remission of my sins. I said, here's what you told me. And he looked at it and he said, I lied. He was a deacon in a Calvinist church. He couldn't do anything different. He couldn't give up his position. (laughs) This is a very prevalent and dangerous doctrine. And I wish I could shout that from the rooftops of some building so the whole world could hear it. Non-Calvinists, that's probably you and me, have a problem with this text. To take this passage literally, as some say, it means that if a Christian abandons Christ, he's eternally condemned. I want you to consider something. What I'm about to tell you will not be found in any commentary. I'm not basing my view on anybody's view. I'm basing the view on my study, and I'm still studying. But I want you to consider this. Consider the uh, days of all. Now, if you look in the Bible and try to find the days of all, you won't find them named like that. They're there, but you won't see the days of all. But if you look on online or whatever, you'll find the days of all. The days of all, and bear with me, this is a little technical, begin with Rosh Hashanah. That's the head of the year, means head of the year. The first day of the year, the civil year which occurred this year on September 25th, by the way, head of the Jewish year, and ends 10 days later on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That happened on October 5th of this year. Those 10 days are called the Days of All. And here's the reason. The Jews believed on the first day of the year, the sounding of the trumpets 
introducing the year, that God decided, God looked at the previous records of all of us, all his people, and says, okay, these people are going to die this year. Maybe for some sins they've committed, whatever, they're going to die this year. These people are not. Well, what if I'm on that list? I, it's time for me to think about this. I, I might die this year. God might have me on that list. But, but he's not going to really put names of death on the list until Yom Kippur, 10 days later, Day of Atonement. He's going to put the names on. You mean I have 10 days? I have 10 days now to uh, get my life right. It's exactly right. That's what the days of all are. Let me ask you a question. What if God came to you and said, okay, you've got 10 days now to make sure your life is right. What would you do? Everything you could. You might say, man, I, you know, I offended John uh, last month and I said something crazy to him and, and I put, really put him down and I might have been a little bit right, but I was wrong to do it. I got to find John. John, I was crazy. Please forgive me. And you know, I took some money from a fellow worker. I don't know why I did it, but I did. It was just $10, but it was $10. So I go running back to him and I say, look, George, <laughs> you know, last March, and I don't know what got into me, but I just, you had the money lying right there on the bench where we were working. And I just grabbed it. I knew you wouldn't know and you still don't know, but now you know here it is. And here's another $5 kind of help make up for it. That's what you would probably be doing for 10 days and then begging God, begging God to forgive you on your knees for 10 days, begging God to forgive you. And you're seeing the effects of the Day of Atonement that's coming on. You know what's going to happen on the Day of Atonement. You know that animal's going to take sins out into the wilderness and dump them. And I pray, God, I pray, God, this will cover me. I'm looking for your atonement. You know, in the Lord's Church, we don't have days like that. We don't have times that are designated on the calendar that we are to repent or whatever. I remember when I was in college, and I was a dumb guy. That's the reason I went to college. I went in dumb and came out dumb. No, I came out a lot smarter. But I had a friend. I might have told you this story because it stuck with me. I had a friend who was very religious. And uh, he said, uh, you know, James, I plan to, uh, I plan to uh, give up smoking 40 days before the uh, week of the Passion of Christ. And he, and, and he said, what are you going to do for Lent? Now, see, I didn't know what Lent was. I, I, didn't, know, I didn't know what he was going to do. His was L-E-N-T. Mine was L-I-N-T. And I said, well, John, I, I usually use a clothes brush myself. Well, he's going to use non-smoking to honor God during Lent, 40 days of Lent. And he wanted to know what my sacrifice was. Wow. So here are the days of all. What's going to happen on Day of Atonement? If I do these days of all right, if my repentance is correct, I'll be renewed to repentance. 
God will know that. And he won't write my name in that bad book. Now look what the writer said. If they fall away, it is impossible to renew them to repentance. Some of these people were saying, hey, we had great things happening under Moses, the first covenant. I really enjoyed that time of the year. It, it refreshed me. It, it cleaned me up. It, and I knew at the end of the Day of Atonement, they came back and said, your sins are forgiven you. And I was so excited about that. And there was a big party after that. And matter of fact, that's where I met and married my wife. A lot of people after sundown on the Day of Atonement, a lot of young people got together for parties and meals and so forth and proposed marriage. It was the greatest day of the year. That was the end of the days of awe. But in the time this letter was written, that was no good. The way to repentance was through Christ. They could not be renewed to repentance in that old way. And they could not be renewed to repentance in the new way because they had rejected Christ. They could never be renewed to repentance if they stayed in a state of rejection against Christ. And he's urging them, no doubt, by saying this, to come back to Christ. Stay with Christ so repentance will be meaningful. Because it's impossible if you fall away to be renewed to repentance, that old covenant will not do it. Now, to me, that makes more sense than anything I've ever heard. For the earth, and this is human beings here, talked about for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it, bears and it bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessings from God, but if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. That's what's going to happen to you, he says, if you go away from God. But beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work, labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. We desire that each of you know, each of you show the same diligence, full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, question, what if they do become sluggish? And what if they don't imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises? Well, they get them anyway, Calvinism. They don't get them anyway. He's warning them to hold on to, hold on to what's right. Because you reject that, you don't get it. You fall away, you don't get it. Christians, you fall away, you don't get it. Very, very easy to understand. When God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply you, so that after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Abraham patiently endured and then obtained the promises of the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and no for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly 
to the heirs of the promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed by an oath that by two immutable things, by the promise and the oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold on, of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of our soul, both sure and steadfast. What if you stop believing in that hope? You still have it if you're Calvinist. You don't have it. You lost it. That's what the Bible teaches. Which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Very simply stated. Well, that went faster than I thought it was going to. We still have another whole five minutes left. I do need to make a confession here, though. Last week I taught something that was not true. And uh, the problem with this class is you have to endure it 45 minutes. I have to endure it before I teach it. I have to teach it several times in my mind. Then I have to teach it like right now. And then I hear it several times again. My mind works that way. So at 4.30 on Thursday morning, I was halfway in and out of sleep. Suddenly occurred to me that I taught something wrong. Sunday before. A minor thing, but still I want to correct it. I put Daniel in the 5th century B.C. He was in the 6th century B.C. In fact, I have a title. If you put it in your notes, I have a caption. Daniel was in the 5th century. He was in the 500s. But according to the way we keep records, that's the 6th century. That's not the only mistake I made, but that's the one that came to me. And uh, I just wanted to correct that. I hate an error of any kind. And I make plenty of them, and I hate every one of them I make. And when I find them, I try to let you know. Uh, anybody have any comments or questions as we uh, are about to conclude our class? Uh, I don't know if Glenn's here or not, but you can ask him. No, I don't see him. I thought I saw Cindy a while ago, but whatever. Uh, there's Cindy down there. We ran Glenn off. Sorry about that. So ask Glenn if you have a question. Uh, thank you for your attention. Uh, this uh, type of class may be different than you've ever been in. I, I don't care if it is. The best way to learn the Bible is to read the Bible and study the Bible, contemplate the Bible. Why did he say that? How can that be? And uh, we need to do that and dwell on those passages to help us understand the, what is happening. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for our blessings. Thank you for our minds. Bless us with the things that we need to help in your work. Bless our class. Bless our elders. Be with us. Throw your uh, protection over us as we leave this place to protect us from the evil one. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Don't run in the hall. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.